To the Only Jesus Podcast, a production of Resurrection Life Church, a PCA mission in Apex, North Carolina. We apologize that due to difficulties in production, we were unable to produce a podcast for the last three weeks. As we pick back up, Dr. Kanesh has begun a new sermon series called Mobilizing in Moab. After 40 years of wandering, the Israelites settle on the plains of Moab. All that is separating them from the promised land is the Jordan River. They can literally see the promised land. But before they can enter, the Lord sits them down for instructions. The whole book of Deuteronomy is about God instructing and mobilizing His people for the future. Obviously, the historical context for the Church of Jesus Christ is much different than it was for the Israelites. But Paul wrote regarding the Israelites in 1 Corinthians 10, 10 and 11, that these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Deuteronomy has practical and important insights for the church today. As we look to the future, Deuteronomy will challenge us in obedience, faithfulness, diligence, persistence, dependence, and togetherness. In this podcast, Pastor Mark will be teaching out of Deuteronomy 3, verses 18 through 22, about the importance of looking out for one another and fighting spiritually for the cause of others, while at the same time trusting the Lord is the one fighting for us. Now, here's Pastor Mark with Mobilizing in Moab, God fights for us. I encourage you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 3. Deuteronomy chapter 3 will be our passage. One of the great things about going through a sermon series like Deuteronomy is you get to preach on passages that are not always, it doesn't always come across as a preachable passage. But once again, very, very appropriate, I think, for our time here today in 2024 as we consider, you know, what Israel was doing there, getting mobilized on the plains of Moab and Moses God through Moses speaking to their to the people, preparing them to enter into the promised land. And so here's, here's a just a unique passage that we get to deal with with some of the kind of backstory of what's been going on up to this point. Once again, let's come to our God in prayer before we read God's word. Dear Lord, we thank you again for this opportunity to read your word and to hear proclaimed. Lord, I've heard it said that uh, when one pastor who I respect said that when he closes his eyes to pray, that's like flies are kind of swimming around his brain and has a very hard time concentrating. And I can resonate with that, and many of us can resonate with that, as that not only happens, can happen in our prayer life, but also when we're about to hear a sermon as well. And so we pray, Lord, that when we pray like this, and when, we about, when we're about to hear your word, um, that your Holy Spirit will, will work through our hearts and through our minds and through our strength to stay focused with what you have in store for us today. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So hear these words from Deuteronomy chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. And I commanded you at that time, saying, The Lord your God has given you this land to possess. All your men of valor shall cross over, armed before your brothers, the people of Israel. Only your wives, your little ones, and your livestock 
I know that you have much livestock, shall remain in the cities that I have given you until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as to you, and they also occupy the land that the Lord your God gives them beyond the Jordan. Then each of you may return to his possession, which I have commanded you. And I commanded Joshua at that time, your eyes have seen all that the Lord your God has done to these two kings. So will the Lord do to all the kingdoms into which you are crossing. You shall not fear them, for it is the Lord your God who fights for you. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, um, there's this uh, cartoon, um, Marvel cartoon called What If? And uh, they present different scenarios of, of whether or not, whether superheroes made different choices in life and the outcome of what those superheroes' lives would look like if they had made those choices. And, um, and, and I was thinking about that a little bit in preparation for this introduction. You know, can you, can you imagine, like, what if Superman, you know, you know, this fake real world of Superman, you know, comes to Earth and he's got all these superpowers and he's, you know, able to do all these things and he's able to help people. And when he's provided the opportunity, hey, can you, can you go help these people over here? You know, some robbers are after them. And he's like, you know what? I'm good. I, I'm, I actually have an appointment in a few minutes at a really fancy restaurant in Italy. I'm just going to fly there and have some great lunch. Or, or Batman, you know, Batman, he has all this, this wealth, you know, he's living up in his ivory tower and, and he's got all this, this, this power and they're asked, and, and, and he has this ability to make a change in the difference in the city. And he's like, you know what? I've got my butler, you know, I've got my, my comfort. I, I'm not going to really make, make all that big of a difference. Now, those two scenarios would be ridiculous, right? They're not superheroes. And I was thinking about that a little bit when, when in preparation for this message, because this, the first chunk of this passage, the Lord through Moses is spoken to specific tribes within Israel who have already received their land. And so there's a tension in the text of like, okay, you've received your land, but are you going to respond with like, nah, I'm good. I've got my, I've got my stuff over here. I'm not going to help out over there. So we're going to explore that a little bit this morning, that tension that's happening a little bit in the passage and also in the, the tribes and what that means for us today as well. And so the outline for us this morning is going to be God's charge, God's charge specifically for these specific tribes, God's faithfulness, God's fight, and then uh, fight the right fight, which is borrowed from 1 Timothy 6, fight the good fight. This is going to be fight the right fight. Okay, so let's, let's begin with God's charge. So I'm going to read for us a little, I'm going to read for us verses 18 and 20 again. Um, I was reminded recently, it's like, Mark, you know, you're swimming these passages like a, a while. And so sometimes we need to be reminded, go back to them. So this, we're going to read this through again. And before I do, I want you to keep in mind that God is speaking to Gad, Reuben, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. Now, I'm going to show you um, a picture here. And, and so if we, look, if we look at this picture and you look at where they are, where the arrow leads to Abel, Shittim, and uh, you have this land of Moab in the blue, and north of that, and then there's uh, Ammon north of that, eventually you have Gad, and you have Reuben, and you have the half-tribe of Manasseh, take over those lands. And so ready at the beginning of Deuteronomy, they've already fought battles to claim this land on the Transjordan, on the other side of the Jordan. So they've already conquered some land. 
sort of like, sort of like to prepare them for the big wars that are ahead in, uh, across the Jordan. Okay? And so there's this moment in, in Deuteronomy 3 where God is now saying to these two and a half tribes, we're going to just call them the two and a half. The two and a half, what are they going to do? And so 18 through 20 says this, And I commanded you at that time, saying, The Lord your God has given you this land to possess. Because this has already happened. All your men of valor, though, shall cross over armed before your brothers, like in front of your brothers, the people of Israel. Only your wives and your little ones and your livestock, and I love this, I know that you have much livestock, shall remain in the cities that I have given you until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as to you, and they also occupy the land that the Lord your God gives them beyond the Jordan. Then each of you may return to the possession which I have given you. Now, in Numbers, the book of Numbers, we actually have a response from this, these tribes. And uh, Moses is concerned. Moses is concerned. What do we do? We, these two and a half tribes already have their land. You know, they, we have to make sure that they're going to be on board with us to cross over. And so he charges them, and how do they respond? They respond to Moses in Numbers 32, verse 7, 17, and 18 this way. But we will take up arms ready to go before the people. We will not return to our homes until each of the people of Israel has gained his inheritance. And so it's, it's a, a kind of a, a beautiful moment for this two and a half uh, group here, saying, you know what, we are going to. We're going to fight for our brothers. Yes, we have all this, this cattle. We have all this, this wealth. We have all this land. But we're going to make sure we have our brothers back. And so God charges them, buckle up. It's still go time. And there's these verbs here, cross over, armed, like ready to go. And I love the fact that it's like before your brothers, the word there is head. So you're actually going to lead the charge on behalf of of this whole campaign. And so there's this charge and the two and a half respond and they say, hey, we're, we're going to do this. We're going we're gonna to fight. And, and verse 20 says, they're going to fight until the Lord gives rest to your brothers. And the word rest there is not the word shalom. It's the word for just stopping activity. Um, shalom comes after that. Shalom is the, the rest and the peace that they have as living in the land. This is a rest from wartime, like a, a stop from the activity. And so once that ends, then your, your families over here, the other tribes over here, they're going to rest and have the shalom there. You're going to go back across to the Transjordan area. You're going to be experiencing shalom there. And so there's this bit of a tension in the text, the 2.5, I'll call it the 2.5 option. You've got free land. You're bringing in all your cattle, and I know you have a lot of cattle. Will you go? Will you go and be with the rest of your brothers to fight? Are we going to just stay here and stay in our comfort zone? We've got all the success we need to thrive in this area. Even the Lord notices how much success we have. And so I think this temptation is real. I know you've done well for yourselves. I know that you have credentials. I know that you have... Tons of your future already prepared for yourself. I know you do well for yourself. How does what you have hinder you from helping others? Like for you, I'm asking. Because we are charged to go. 
And if your response is something like, you know, I'm good. I, I don't need to help my fellow brothers and sisters in this place. I'm good. God responds back. Something like, you know, I, I know you're good. In fact, I already gave, I'm the one who made it good for you. But your well-being is not an end in itself. Your rest will come after you help your brothers and sisters first get their rest. And so don't unpack. Don't get settled. Don't feel settled. You are not settled until those of your brothers and sisters are also settled. And so, you know, we have all these lies in our culture that taught, speaks to us specifically about the lies of consumerism, like I must look out for myself, or I need stuff to feel at peace, or I must ensure I'm, my financial future is 100% secure. You know, we've been calling out the mission of the month, the World Renew gift catalog. This is a really simple way to help people. Really simple. You could put 20 bucks, maybe it's 40 bucks, for like a sheep. Um, and that will transform someone's life. You could buy like hair nets to protect people from getting bitten by mosquitoes and getting malaria. Um, these, these are ways, there, there, are, there are brothers and sisters all over the world who are living in conditions that are a lot harder than ours and who are a lot poorer than we are. And there are people all around us. And I think this passage speaks and challenges us, uh, challenges us a bit to think about what we own and have in our financial security as stewards. God gave it to you. Just this morning, I was looking on Facebook and a friend of mine posted this picture of a property that he owns. And it's like the picture on top of a hill. It's beautiful view. And uh, he's celebrating the fact that they've owned this land for several years. And he, the title is, Look at, capital O, U, our land. And I was like, your land? <laughs> That's not your land. God gave you that land. God gave you that land. And so this passage, before we get to this next point, we have to wrestle through this tension in the text between thinking consumeristically and thinking covenantally. Consumeristically is me first, safety and stuff, addiction to the purchase of click and comfort and control. Covenant is God first, us first, safety in fellowship, addiction to generosity, and comfort in God's control and sovereignty. Okay, we're going to move on to God's faithfulness. We're going to get back to this in a little bit, but uh, let's, let's focus on God's faithfulness in this passage as it continues. So God's charge and God's faithfulness. Verses 21 says, And I commanded Joshua at that time, Your eyes have seen all that the Lord your God has done to these two kings. So will the Lord do to all the kingdoms into which you are crossing. So Deuteronomy uh, 1, 38, it says this, Joshua, the son of Nun, who stands before you, Moses says, he shall enter. Or God's speaking, sorry. Joshua to Moses. Joshua, the son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall enter. Encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit it. So at the beginning of Deuteronomy, Moses is being commissioned by God to encourage Moses, to encourage, encourage Joshua. And so we see in verse 21, you have seen with your own eyes what God has done. There's a, an intensely personal aspect to this, these, the way it's written here. Joshua, your eyes have seen how God is faithful. Look at what he's done in the Transjordan. That is what's going to happen over here. God gave it to you here. 
God gave it to you there. We'll give it to you there. And so there's an emphasis on just the, the importance of an eyewitness account of God's faithfulness. Remember what you saw. Don't forget what your eyes have seen. Don't doubt what your eyes have seen. Ava and I have been reading through The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And, um, and I, I just love this book. It's one of my all-time favorites. And in this book, Lucy goes into this fantasy land and, uh, called Narnia. And, and she, when she comes back, her brothers and sisters don't believe her. I love Lucy because she never backs down. She's like, I have been there. I have seen it. And they're thinking she's either one or two things, a liar or a lunatic. And she is, uh, she's just resolved. She will not back down by what she has seen. And she responds to them. You know, she's a bit, a bit teary and she's been bugged a little bit by Edmund about all of this, her brother. And, and she says, I don't care what you think. And I don't care what you say. You can tell the professor or you can write to mother or you can do anything you like. She just doesn't care because she knows what's true. Yesterday, I was asked the question, um, tell us about the diet of worms. And I'm like, ooh, I know this one. I'm going to run with this one. And so, you know, 1520, Martin Luther is before this diet of worms. Why they called it the diet of worms is hilarious to me. But anyway, well, that's not hilarious. The name is just now hilarious. But it's a diet of worms, famously known as Martin Luther saying, I am captivated by the word of God. I cannot, I will not recant. The whole thing was built around Martin Luther recanting his stances against the Roman Catholic Church and against uh, indulgences specifically. And so Moses, or uh, which guy am I talking about here? Martin Luther <laughs> says, uh, no, I'm not going to do it. And so he ends up getting whisked away and Frederick the Pious plans a kidnapping and kidnaps Martin Luther so that Martin Luther wouldn't be receiving the discipline of the church, which may have led to this severe punishment against him. Martin Luther, you can't unsee God's faithfulness as revealed in God's word. Why does Moses charge Joshua to don't forget your eyewitness account? It's because we are a forgetful bunch. You know, speaking of the line, the witch in the wardrobe, Susan, the oldest sister, eventually forgets. And she thinks that this is just a land of fairy tale, place of make-believe. It's the same kind of reasoning given by those who we know, and perhaps some of us know and love, who are deconstructing their faith, saying, yeah, this is, you're living in the land of fairy tale. You're living in the land of make-believe. And perhaps some of you are even struggling and wrestling with your faith, feeling the tug towards that word that's so popular right now, deconstructing faith. But God reminds Joshua, remember what you see and what you've seen. Remember how I work, God says. Look at the rearview mirror of your life and you see my faithfulness. You cannot doubt it. And so what we're going to do is we're going to do something unusual in this sermon. We're going to take 30 seconds. And we're going to take 30 seconds of silence. And I want to encourage you just for a moment to do some introspection and to look in the rearview mirror of your life and think of one or two milestones where you have seen God's faithfulness in your life. Where, where you felt convicted by the Holy Spirit and you felt the Lord saying, to you, I'm here. My word is true for you. And so think about that. We're going to do this awkwardly for about 30 seconds. Go ahead. Okay, so for whatever that was for you, 
I want you to think about, our, as we transition to the next point, not merely God's faithfulness, but also God fighting for you. The God who fights for us. Because in verse, 13, verse 18, it says, I, And I commanded you at that time, saying, The Lord your God has given you this land to possess. That's how this passage begins. Lord's given it. Don't forget it. And then verse 22, You shall not fear them, for it is the Lord your God who fights for you. There's an interesting thing that happens in the text. Um, God, through Moses again, is encouraging Moses, uh, Joshua do not forget what you have seen. But then the you changes to the plural you at the end. You shall not fear them. It is for the Lord your God, for it is the Lord your God who fights for you. And so Joshua, as the leader, must not forget what he's seen. And, and, then, and, then, and then all of Israel needs to hear the reminder, it is God who fights for you. Shall not fear them. Don't repeat history, because when we look at the Biri Vimir, we see the reason why they weren't allowed to get into the, the land for the, in the first place. That 11-day walk from Mount Horeb to Kadesh Barnea, which was the borderland of the promised land, and they were too fearful, and they had to go all the way around for 40 years. Do not fear, because it's the Lord who fights for you. I love that in this text. It's so beautiful. And so we have here uh, this theme, right, of God fighting for us uh, that runs throughout all of Scripture. Uh, but there's a couple early ones that I want to point out to. De- Deuter- again, Deuteronomy 1.30, it says, The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. You see that connection between eyewitness account of God's faithfulness as God fighting for you. And so... Um, Exodus 14, so way back now, in, in, or several years earlier to, uh, to this, so Exodus 14, as they're leaving Egypt, and Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians who you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. And you have only to be silent. So God the warrior... God the fighter is a theme that, that runs throughout this, the Pentateuch and throughout Scripture. Jeremiah 20.11, the Lord is with me like a mighty warrior. And of course, as we <laughs> press the fast forward button and as we go into the New Testament, we see Jesus Christ who is the ruler and who is our warrior and who fights for us. And he fights against Satan. He, he fights against his legion of demons. He fights against our own sin and he fights against death itself. And he wins. There's this, this way of understanding the work of the cross called Christus Victor. Some of you are familiar with this concept where Christ is victorious. The King Christ is victorious. He is our victor over all these things. And so that the kingdom of light defeats the kingdom of darkness. And he took up arms for us by giving up his life. That Jesus fought the battle of flesh and blood by giving up his own. So much I love about the Christmas story. One of the details I love in Luke 2 is that when the shepherds are out there on the field, there's this host of angels. And so when you say the phrase heavenly host, it's... Uh, it feels very Bible-ish, you know? It's a heavenly host. It's beautiful people in the sky. But that word for host is strategia, where we get the word strategy from, and it's the word army. 
And so this army is up there in the sky singing what? Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those whom he is pleased. And so how do they know it's an army? Like these shepherds would have been able to record, you know, they had first eye count of this. So they're seeing an army and they know it's an army somehow. I'm guessing because they're actually holding weapons, but they're not holding weapons to fight. They're holding weapons just to, to hold their resolve because the king is here. The king is going to fight. And their role is not to wield their weapons. Their role is to hold them and to sing and to be a chorus and a choir and sing. Glory to God in the highest because our king, our, our fighter king is here and he is going to defeat sin and death and so the army proclaims peace because the Prince of Peace came to bring about a whole new understanding of redemption and hope and love. So God's charge, God's faithfulness, God's fight. Now we're going to deal with this last point, fight the right fight of faith. So 1 Timothy 6, one of my very favorite passages in all of Scripture, God used it in a time in my life where I really needed it. Fight the good fight of faith. This also happens to be a verse that's oftentimes associated with my name, Mark, which means mighty warrior, by the way, which I thought was pretty cool. Very different than Kinech, which means short, stocky farmer. Um, so, so I'm really proud of my first name. Um, but anyway, we have this, this fight the good fight of faith passage. And, but I want to f- reframe it. Fight the right fight of faith. Because Christ fulfills the battle against flesh and blood. It's hard sometimes for us to understand the, the type of battles that's going on in Deuteronomy, where the battle was very much indeed against flesh and blood. But the, how Christ fulfills the battle itself. It's a very comforting passage, Ephesians 6, 12 to 13. Very comforting, but also very challenging. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. What does that mean? That means that we do not wrestle against people, but against the rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take arm, take arms, the whole armor of God. And so as the church, our responsibility as the church is to fight against these things and to take up arms as the 2.5 we're called to, as the people who already received all their benefits in Christ, we've received all our benefits, but our work is not done. We are still called to bear arms, folks. But the types of armor that we have is what? A, a breastplate of righteousness and, and a sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and a helmet of salvation and, and, a, and a belt of truth and feet fitted with the gospel of peace ready to go out into this world. And this is not an analogy or a metaphor in the text. And pray. Pray and pray and pray. The word prayer is repeated often after that passage. And so with all this armor, to go out to pray. And when we look at church history, I've had to deal with a lot of church history recently, we've noticed many times where the battle, the church has got this confused, where the battle isn't given to, isn't, is given to the government, right? In Romans 13. They have the sword, but somehow the church has messed that up. Somehow the church thinks, oh, we, we, have, we have that physical sword. In 1071, for example, this is from the Christian History Magazine, top 100 most important events in church history. Battle of Manzikirk. Um, 
The Seljuk Turks massacred the Byzantine Empire's armies, taking over Jerusalem, making it impossible for Christians to visit. And then 1074, Greg, Pope Gregory VII, he says, well, we're going to recruit 50,000 volunteers to take arms and liberate Jerusalem. About 20 years later, in, 20, uh, in 1095, Pope Urban II preached this sermon. A horrible tale, he says, has gone forth, and a cursed race, utterly alienated from God, has invaded the lands of the Christians and depopulated them by the sword, plundering and fire. Tear that land from the wicked race and subject it to yourselves. And people, the church, responded, God wills it! God wills it! They all responded together, Deus volt! Deus volt! God wills it, became their battle cry. And that was the beginning of a 300-year-old attempt to inspire Christians to bear arms to take over this land, each fighting with the cross embroidered on their uniforms, showing the power of the cross. Now, the Crusades were a dismal failure. One infamous crusade was an army of children, most of whom ended up dead or in slavery. Your battle, Paul reminded the church, is not against flesh and blood. John Huss, famous Czech theologian, just a wonderful hero of the faith, 1369. It's only a little bit after the Crusades. He's out there calling out the Roman Catholic Church for immorality uh, in, in the priests uh, and, and indulgences, and he's calling out all these kinds of things. And he, the church responded by tricking him to attend uh, an assembly where he would eventually, he was promised that he would be safe, uh, but he would eventually be burnt at the stake. That was in 1415, 102 years before Martin Luther hammered those 95 theses on the Wittenberg doors. Crazy, crazy hero of the faith. Our fight is not against flesh and blood, and the church has got this wrong over and over again. As we look at church history, we see how the blood of the martyrs were the seed of the church, but we also see how the blood from the sword of Christians were the seed of unbelief. Now, it's interesting when you look at the formation of the Presbyterian church, they worked hard to repeat, not repeat history. So in the, the 18th century, uh, John Witherspoon, this, a signer of the Declaration of Independence, prominent Presbyterian, wrote what's called the Preliminary Principles of the Book of Church Order. I'm not going to read them for you. They are very difficult to read, in its language. It happens to be English. I don't know what that's about, but it's very hard to read. But they are fascinating, two of them especially, where it proclaims basically that church discipline is moral and spiritual. And so when we need to, to, to hold each other accountable in sin, that the response is not burning someone at the stake because our authority is over what is the moral and what is the spiritual. Or church power, it says, another one. There's eight of them. One really important one. Church power is ministerial and declarative. Not magisterial, ministerial. Led by leaders in the church who are given the keys of the kingdom. Again, not to burn people at the stake or call out Deus Volt to, pro, to declare a land that was just as holy as the land that they were on in England. People like John Witherspoon is an attempt to build a church that wouldn't and couldn't justify picking up a sword on behalf of Christ. 
But even as the, the, you know, the Presbyterian Church adopted these principles in 1778, we still get these wrong. Fight the right fight, folks, is a reminder that for us, Christ has won the battle for us. Fight the right fight means that the church is called to emulate our captain by giving up ourselves for the interests of others, not for the fight, not to fight for our own interests. Fight the right fight means our battle is not against flesh and blood. Our fight is against the kingdom of darkness. The enemy is happy when Christians are filled with their massive flocks of cattle, with resources, comforts, money, and successful careers that keep them busy, comfortable, and quiet. The brilliant Christian musician Sufjan Stevens wrote a haunting Christmas song with just one line sung repeatedly, I am Santa's helper, you are Santa's slave. I am Santa's helper. You are Santa's slave. Satan's happy when we are stuck in stuff. The enemy will promote ideologies that mimic Christianity but are in fact not true faith. Ideologies that teach earthly wealth is a biblical mandate that teach we ought to seek security as opposed to expecting suffering that is false. Ideologies that teach self-improvement and success is a biblical calling as opposed to self-denial That is what we believe, is it not? Our enemy will do anything to shut us up and keep us quiet. And our fight is against our own sin. Thoughts of prejudice and racism, greed and gluttony gluttony slide in our minds without mourning. We size up and size down. We gawk at what does not belong to us, whether things or people. We judge the appearance of her outfit and we talk behind their backs. We fight, we yell, we stay silent, we retreat, we resent. We push back, insult, and put salt in people's wounds. We use, misuse, and abuse God's good creation. We deny our sin, defy those in authority. We idolize political figures, justify hate against our neighbors. We have regrets of the past that we can't get over. We have addictions we can't shake off. And our compulsion, compulsive behavior robs us from opportunities from honoring God. We overgeneralize and ostracize. We excuse our sin and point at the speck in the eye of others. We murder with our minds, lust over the ladies, just without, judge without justice, fight without fairness, point the pointer, and bend the rules of righteousness. Folks, our sin is the enemy, and it keeps us disconnected to our calling as missionaries because our fight is the Great Commission to go and make disciples of all nations. Can you imagine if throughout the course of church history, the church spent as much time and resources put into evangelism as it did in weaponry or in Bible translation? Our battle cry must remain, God wills it, God wills it, Veus volt, as we put on God's armor to fight against Satan and sin. God wills that we put on our salvation and truth and righteousness and peace, and the Word of God, and prayer. This is fighting both the good fight and the right fight of faith. Bear the cross, not on your shirt, but in your hearts. Bear it in a way that you can confess what the first martyr said while being stoned to death in Acts 7. Into thy hands I commit my spirit. And so as we conclude, we remember God's charge for us. Remember God's faithfulness And remember God's fight that he has already given to us our inheritance in Jesus. 
And we get to receive Christ and all His benefits today. And that He has already fought for us in Jesus Christ. That victory is ours today. We fight, but we fight as co-heirs with the Christus Victor. We bear the cross in our hearts and our lives. These two truths, what God has given and what God has fought for, are the bookends of our life. And so go and do what God wills for you and put on the armor of God. What is the armor of God? Paul tells us in Ephesians that it is our faith, our righteousness, our salvation, the truth, and peace. The shield of faith that God goes before us as he did for the Israelites 3,400 years ago. The breastplate of righteousness so that we might not be susceptible to attacks of guilt sent by the evil one. The helmet of salvation that assures you of life eternal. The belt of truth that Jesus is the Son of God. And the shoes of peace because our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the cosmic powers over this present darkness and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. But most importantly of all, praying without ceasing. Here's Pastor Mark. Dear gracious Lord, this is such a challenge for us Christians. It has proven over and over throughout church history that we get the fight wrong. And so we pray, Lord, that you will help us to get it right. And for areas in our lives where we get that wrong, we pray that you will work. And we pray that we will be obedient to you and obedient, Lord, to the Spirit's leading in our heart. Lord, we pray that we will grow, that uh, as we grow in faith, so will our armor, that we will better have a better understand, understanding of what is peace and what is right and what is true, of a good understanding of what it means to go out with feet fitted with the gospel that will be grounded in your word, will be a people of prayer. Help us do that as, we, as you give shape to our identity, as we live the cruciformed life in the shape of a cross, following our captain Jesus. We pray in Christ's name alone. Amen. Only Jesus is a production of the Resurrection Life Church in Apex, North Carolina, a mission church of the Presbyterian Church of America. This podcast was produced by Marty Miller, and the recording and production were copyrighted in 2024. The message was written, delivered, and copyrighted by Dr. Mark Kanesh in 2024. I'm Marty Miller, inviting you to join us this Sunday morning at 10 a.m. in the Apex Middle School Auditorium for our full worship service of prayer and praise of only Jesus.